morning to everybody. Good morning to everybody on Zoom. Um, it is good to be here. Uh, if you would, please grab a Bible or a Bible app, and uh, we've got some Bibles over on the resource table. We've also got some sermon handouts over there as well, and uh, the last couple weeks we've not been doing slides just to give our AV team kind of a break. So if you want to see what the slides would look like, just go ahead and grab one of those. And I even did the, the blanks correctly. So if you're a fill-in-the-blank person, you can totally uh, get into that. Uh, it's over on the resource table. But everyone else, please turn to Acts chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. Acts chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. And if you were here with us uh, last week, then you know that we're right smack in the middle of the account of Cornelius. And this, this story of Cornelius is really a pivotal story in the book of Acts. Uh, it's the first time that we see any of the apostles, who are all Jewish, preaching to a Gentile audience. And so we're going to see these speeches. One of the s- signature aspects of the book of Acts is that it, it has evangelistic speeches to various audiences. So this is the first time we're seeing a Gentile audience being preached to by these Jewish apostles in the early church. Um, last week, we looked at how God worked through the prayers of Peter, the apostle, and Cornelius to bring together, like I said, this Jewish apostle with this Gentile Roman centurion, how God worked through both of their prayer lives in accomplishing his purposes and plans and bringing them together. And then today's passage, it really helps us better understand how God had prepared the hearts of both Peter and Cornelius to, to interact in accordance with his, his will in this divinely orchestrated meeting between the two. So we're going to see how he prepared them for this meeting. Um, as I was researching this uh, idea of gospel preparedness, it, I, I stumbled across something I'd looked at a couple times, but um, if any of y'all know of the Boy Scouts of America, uh, the, the founder of and I bet Brandon knows this, but Robert Baden-Powell is the guy, he's the father of the modern scouting movement. He was an English soldier right around the turn of the century, 120 years ago. And in 1908, Robert Baden-Powell published, actually a year before he he devised this this motto, but in 1908, he published in Scouting Magazine the the motto which would go on to, to become the motto for the Boy Scouts of America, and that is... For anybody that was a scout, what? Always be prepared. Be prepared, yes, exactly. Always be prepared. You could add the emphasis if you like. But the model was simply be prepared. And, uh, and Baden-Powell went on to, to uh, describe the meaning of be prepared. He said this. He said, you're always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty, whatever that duty is. You're always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. And for Boy Scouts in England in 1908, that idea of preparedness was going to get severely tested because not long thereafter, uh, England was involved in the First Great War, the the World War I. Uh, And then later, uh, a couple decades later, it was involved in World War II as well. And it's interesting, I read this quote from, it's a 1955 article that quoted uh, in Scouting Magazine that quoted Winston Churchill when he was asked about the, the English scouts, these Boy Scouts in England. And he talks about it in the context of World War II. And this is what Winston Churchill wrote. He said, their keen eyes were added to the watchers along the coast. That was the people watching for, for land invasions from the coast. 
so their keen eyes were added to the watchers along the coast. In the air raids, we saw the spectacle of children 12 and 14 performing with perfect coolness and composure the useful function assigned to them in the streets and public offices. 12 and 14-year-old scouts, and, he, he, and the way he put it was, with perfect coolness and composure, performing, they were prepared to do what their nation called upon them to do in that context of war. And I think it's really inspiring. I mean, you think about 12 years old, Hannah's about to turn 12 in June. But it's inspiring to see these examples of 12-year-olds being as prepared as possible for wartime responsibilities. I mean, we're seeing some of that in the Ukraine right now. Uh, but, but in today's context for this sermon today, I want to I think not about wartime responsibilities. I want to I talk about spiritual responsibilities. So with regard to spiritual responsibilities, can we, regardless of what age we are, regardless of you know, whether we've been to seminary or not, or all these other things that we come up with to kind of segregate ourselves out. But can all of us be as prepared to preach the gospel of peace as these English scouts were prepared for the horrors of war? And, and the resounding answer is yes, we can be that prepared for our spiritual responsibilities as Christians. And that goes for every man, woman, and child who has ever put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and received the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us for gospel witness. Anybody who's trusted in Christ, regardless of age. But trusting in God, trusting in Christ, is exactly what it takes to be prepared for evangelism. That word evangelism, sometimes like a chill runs up our spine, like we have to talk to people who aren't Christians about what it means to be a Christian, about how to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We have to have spiritual conversations. You know, it's like, ugh. Because <laughs> we don't feel equipped. We don't feel prepared. But trusting is what it takes for preparation to be involved in evangelism. And here's, here's just the fallen condition that we face as human beings in this world right now. It's that when we fail to trust in the fact that God is at work in people's lives, both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us that we may end up in these conversations with. When we fail to trust that God is at work in those ways, what do we do? We tend to put way too much pressure and responsibility on us to do what only God can ultimately do, or, or and, we put too much pressure on the person we're having a, a spiritual conversation with to immediately understand and inculcate these beliefs just in their own ability, right off the top. Like, well, why don't you understand this? You know, so we're putting pressure on ourselves, and we're putting pressure on others in this whole context of evangelism because we don't trust that God's at work, both in our life and in the lives of those people. And guys, that's really t today's big idea. Uh, it's that God prepares people's heart for the gospel, both to share the gospel, but also to hear and receive and accept the truth of the gospel. And today's passage shows us both sides of this because we get to see it from Peter's perspective and we get to see it from Cornelius's perspective. And so what we see in today's passage is how God was simultaneously working with both of these individuals, with both Peter, the Jewish apostle, and with this Roman centurion Cornelius to, to do what? To bring about the fruit of salvation, of new life in Christ, in the life of Cornelius and his household. 
So we're going to begin with Peter in the first part of our passage, and then we'll look at Cornelius a little bit later. So first of all, God prepares people, human beings. We talked about this last week. People, flesh and bone, just like us. Uh, he, he, he prepares us to share the good news of salvation. That's his chosen vessel. We are his chosen vessel, I should say. Um, so specifically, he had been cultivating in our passage, Peter, uh, he'd been cultivating in Peter a humble heart as well as an open mind. And so those two attributes, there's, there's other things we could point to in Scripture, but in the context of the story, we see God had cultivated in Peter this humble heart and this open mind. So let's look at those two attributes of a well-prepared sharer of the gospel. A well-prepared sharer of the gospel is first and foremost humble-hearted with regard to others. Look at how Peter responds to Cornelius in verses 23 to 26. It says, and remember, this is Cornelius has sent his, his, his men to go get uh, uh, Peter a day's journey away in Joppa. And so here, here comes Peter uh, after he gives those, those folks uh, lodging for the night. They set out the very next day. Okay, so I'll pick up the story there in verse 23. It says, so he, that is Peter, invited them, that is Cornelius's messengers, his men, in and gave them lodging. Now on the next day, he got ready and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We later learned that there were six other Jewish men that went along with him to, to see what God was doing, to witness it. Verse 24, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. So now, remember, last week Peter had seen this vision. It's the vision of the sheet being brought, dropped down from heaven by the four corners, and it opens up and there's all these different animals, clean and unclean, uh, all the different animals of creation, right? And, and the voice from heaven tells Peter, kill and eat, right? And Peter, you know, takes three rounds for Peter, and he's just like, nope, never, eat, never eaten unclean animals, not going to start now. I'm, I'm a good uh, law-abiding Jewish man. I'm not going to do that, right? And then uh, uh, Peter ultimately gets the voice from heaven, says to him, don't consider unholy, or another way to put that is don't consider, don't make common that which God has cleansed, that which God has said, this is clean. And so Peter understood, even though he was a bit confused until everything kind of rolled out when he got to Cornelius's, Peter understood that this was about much more than, than God lifting the dietary restrictions uh, in, the, in the books of Moses, right? In Leviticus and other places. He, he understood this wasn't just about food. This was ultimately about relationships between Jews and Gentiles, and the fact that Peter gave lodging to Cornelius's men who were undoubtedly Gentiles at Simon the Tanner's house, he gave lodging, which probably included sharing a meal of some sort in some sense. That was a big step for Peter. And then going with them. So it's one thing to have Gentiles over to your place. It's another thing to go over to their place. Okay, so it's an even bigger step that Peter was willing, along with these six other Jewish men, to go to the house of Cornelius the next day. That was huge. So it shows that, that Peter is, is being prepared by God. God's working in his heart to humble him. 
And then they get to the house the next day, and this prominent Roman centurion falls down on his face, drops down to the ground in front of everybody to worship at the feet of Peter, this messenger of God. And I don't know what he was thinking here, right? But, but he's coming from a Greco-Roman context, and so who knows? He was probably hanging on some of these ideas about demigods or you know divine beings or something like this but either way he's like this is a significant person that God has sent to me and he gets down on his face and starts worshiping him okay and that word translated as worship it means and it gets used a lot in the new testament but that greek term it means to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure and it can literally mean Kissing somebody's feet or kissing the hem of their garment by their feet or kissing the ground in front of them, right? It can literally mean that. And so Peter is what? He's quick to pull this guy up off the floor and to point out to him that, hey, like you and I are, 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 are the same. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He pulls him up and says, only God is worthy of such worship and devotion. And you know, interesting fact, you know how people always say like, oh, nobody, none of the biblical authors really thought Jesus was divine. They really didn't think he was God. They just thought he was a special prophet or something like this. That, that's so patently false. We could spend ages talking about how there's evidence of the belief in the, the, both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. But it's this kind of worship that Peter and the apostles and the other disciples were giving to Jesus after his resurrection, before he ascended up into heaven. The very same biblical author, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, right before the ascension, they say, and they use the same word, that they worshiped, and then they returned to Jerusalem. They worshiped Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And so this is only meant for God, and of course, Jesus being God is worthy of such worship. And I'll point this out as a side. Has anybody been to Rome? Has anybody been to St. Peter's Basilica? Pretty Pretty breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. We went there. And uh, if you've been there, you've probably seen this. You might not have even known what you were looking at. But there is a, a statue, a famous statue of Peter at St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, he's holding up one hand in blessing. He's holding the keys of the kingdom to his chest. And one of his feet is kind of projecting out from the base. And so pilgrims for centuries have been going to St. Peter's Basilica to touch the toes that were protruding out from the base of that statue and to kiss them as they, as they arrived there as an act of devotion to Peter, to, to St. Peter, right? And so over all the years, if you look at it now, and you can Google this and see the pictures, the toes are completely worn away. The foot is completely smoothed out because so many people have been touching and kissing the feet of, of Peter. And I think that's really interesting given today's passage because I realize that these religious pilgrims are going there and they're, they're wanting to, to give this act of devotion to Peter. But I think given the context of what's happening in the passage, Peter would be the first one to help them up, to stand on their feet and to, to instead point them to God and point them to Jesus Christ, to give glory to Christ, to give glory to God. So that's just an aside. It's just interesting how that worked out historically. But with Cornelius in our passage, Peter could have pridefully encouraged that that sort of devotion. Right. Can you imagine how tempting it would have been for a person in an oppressed people group under the Roman Empire? He was a Jewish man under the Roman Empire 
Caesarea was the, the capital of the Judean province of the, Rome, of the Romans. And so here's all these Gentiles, all these Romans. And you've got this high-ranking officer of the occupying army who's getting down on his face on the ground to kiss your feet. Like how tempting would that have been to just go, wait just a second, just give it a minute. Okay, all right, yeah, time to get up now, right? That would have been tempting, but Peter wasn't like that. You see, God had helped him to see that he and Cornelius were both equally made in God's image, that they were both equally sinners in need of a Savior, that they were both equally loved and valued by God, and that they were equally recipients of God's grace and mercy in Christ. And again, you've maybe heard that saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this is where God had brought Peter in terms of humility in, his, in regard to his relationships with others. A humble heart prepares us to share the good news with others because it allows us to see ourselves and to see those other people. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they've done or whatever. It gives us the ability to see ourselves with humility and to see them with humility and to understand who we are, both us and them, in the light of the gospel of God's grace. Okay, a well-prepared sharer of the gospel is also open-minded with regard to God. Now, what I don't mean by that, by the use of that term open-minded, I don't mean that we are open to any and all opinions as to who God is or what God is or, or even if God exists at all. Okay, we're not open-minded in the sense of, of, of being open to things that violate God's truth in Scripture, all right? What I mean by that is being open to God's truth as it is revealed in Scripture, even and especially, listen to me here, even and especially when it seems, God's truth, when it seems to contradict our own rules and regulations, our own assumptions and presuppositions. That's especially when we need to be open-minded to God's Word. Because a lot of time it's going to cut across the grain of our expectations, as we see in today's passage. Look at verses 27 through 29. It says, as he talked with him, he, that is Peter, entered, he entered into the house. That's a big deal. And he found many people assembled, ostensibly many Gentiles. And he said to them, you yourselves know, he's talking to these Gentiles, he said, you know, they live in a city with Jewish people. They know that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, a non-Jewish Gentile. And then listen to what Peter says. And yet God has shown me that I am not to call any person unholy or unclean. You see, he gets it. That vision that he had in Joppa when he was on the roof with the animals don't call what I call holy unholy. Don't call what I establish as clean, common, or unholy. And he realizes this isn't about animals and dietary restrictions. Ultimately, this is about people and how I view Gentiles. So he says, And yet God has shown me that I am not to call any person unholy or unclean. That is why I came without raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason did you send for me? You got to understand, he's still not quite there yet. He still doesn't completely understand this unfolding mission and plan of God to incorporate Jew and Gentile together in the church of Jesus Christ. So he's like, all right, I didn't object. I'm here. Okay, why am I here? 
And he asks the question. And you've you got to understand the old Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, what we talk about is the law of Moses, okay? The old Mosaic covenant came with dietary restrictions. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. There were dietary restrictions built in. And one of the purposes for those dietary restrictions was to, to, to physically reveal the holiness of God's people, Israel, to, to show the distinction between God's chosen people, Israel, and the nations, this special nation and the surrounding nations. So it established a distinction from the other nations or Gentiles. That's what Gentiles are. They're the other nations. They're the other peoples. And these Gentiles, think about it, they would have eaten all the stuff that the Jewish people were not supposed to eat. The Israelites, later the Jewish people, were not supposed to eat, right? And they would have eaten this stuff, and they would have done things. And the eating of things and the doing of things would have made them ceremonially unclean according to the law. So Jews separated themselves from these other nations. They separated themselves uh, ultimately to glorify God and, and be obedient, right? But over time... Uh, they, they separated from any sort of close interactions, uh, especially table fellowship. That was a big no-no. You do not break bread with a Gentile, all right? Because their uncleanness, sitting at your table, eating foods, uh, certainly don't go to their house and eat at their table. But either way, you are risking your own ceremonial uncleanness by that intimate table fellowship with those Gentiles. So that was a big no-no, right? However, the whole purpose, think about this. Guys, the Bible, the books of Moses don't start with the nation Israel. The books of Moses start with Adam and Eve, Noah and his sons, right? The first 11 chapters of the Bible in Genesis start with all of humanity. Only in chapter 12 do we pick up the story of Abraham, who was a Gentile, who God called out of of Ur, of Mesopotamia, and, and through, through whom God established the nation Israel, right, as his chosen people. But what was the purpose of Israel? It was to be a light to the nations. We see that in the Hebrew prophets. Israel, the nation Israel, with the Jerusalem and with the temple, first the tabernacle, then the temple, as the epicenter of God's presence on earth, where you would go to worship the God of all creation, the God of Jew and Gentile, right? That, that's who Israel was. And ultimately, Israel was the, the, the way that the nations, the Gentiles, would come to know God, the God of Israel. It's how they would come to worship the God of Israel. And ultimately, they would come to God through Israel's Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, who we know to be Jesus Christ. He would be the one to fulfill the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth, Jew and Gentile, would be blessed according to God's plan and promise. So Israel had an important role in all this, but as a light to the nations, as a vehicle through which people could approach God. But over time, over the hundreds and hundreds of years, these rules and regulations of Jewish culture made it all but impossible for an upstanding Jewish person to have any intimate dealings with their Gentile neighbors. They were pretty much segregated, pretty much set apart. At least if you wanted to be considered a law-abiding, upstanding Jewish citizen, you were set apart, you were segregated. But now Peter, the Jewish apostle, and remember the church began with Jewish men and women. That's all the church was at this point. 
And so you see Peter, the Jewish apostle, he's having to rethink his traditional understanding of this Jew-Gentile relationship in light of God's recent revelation, in light of this vision and what God was showing him he was doing through the body of Christ, through the church, the Great Commission. And so the important thing is that Peter was open to reassessing his relationships with Gentiles, and this prepared him to engage in a gospel conversation with Cornelius. How was he prepared to engage in that conversation? Because he was already allowing God to sort of uproot some of those presuppositions and assumptions and traditions. God prepares people to share the good news of salvation by softening hearts with humility toward others and in regard to ourselves, and by challenging our traditions with his truth. Uh, William Carey, some of y'all have heard of him, but in the late 1700s, uh, William Carey's now been called the father of modern missions. And so in the late 1700s, um, he established a Christian mission to India. And uh, before he left for India, he wrote this really important work on missions, on considering the part he and others were to play in the Great Commission. And that it's called, they had long titles back then. This isn't even the full title. But it's an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. And the heathens was just another word for non-Christians. And so in this work, he considers the question of why so many Western Christians, and in his context, it was Christians in England, why so many Western Christians disagreed with this notion of establishing missions to foreign places. Mission to India, for instance, uh, as a continuation of the work of the Great Commission. That was a big problem for this particular denomination of Baptists that he was a part of specifically. And so he writes this, and he he points it out in his work, An Inquiry. He says, it seems as if many thought the commission, the Great Commission, was sufficiently put in execution by what the apostles and others have done. That we have enough to do, this is what he's saying is the thought process of these other Christian folks that were discouraging him from going to India. He says uh, that we have enough to do to attend to the salvation of our own countrymen, And that if God intends the salvation of the heathen, he will some way or other bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. Isn't that ironic? He will, he'll, don't worry, he'll get the gospel to them or bring them to the gospel. And then uh, uh, Carrie writes this, he says, it is thus that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. And I love how Carrie identifies with these non-Christians living in India. He calls them their fellow sinners. Don't you see the humility and how he sees himself and how he sees these, these wonderful people that he feels like God's calling him to reach with the gospel? And clearly God had prepared William Carey's heart to be humble toward others and to be open-minded when God's truth seemed to be running against the grain of acceptable Christian culture of his day. You see that? The prevailing cultural assumption was, we don't need to go to some far-flung country to share the gospel with people, right? And so now he's looking at God's word in the Great Commission saying, I don't think that's right. He was open-minded to that. Gospel preparedness means humble-heartedness toward our fellow sinners, 
and an open-mindedness to God's truth and to be corrected by God's truth. So I think we can apply the first part of today's passage by simply asking this. And ask it of yourselves. I can't ask this of you, so think about this for yourself. Who are we treating as unholy or undeserving of God's grace? Because that's essentially what it boils down to. Who is so unholy or so undeserving of God's grace that we would refrain from seeking them out in love? Who are we rejecting or dismissing as potential followers of Christ? Who just, the way they look, the things they say, the things they do, where they live, what, you know, what their beliefs are currently, who are we looking at saying, ah, those people could never be followers of Jesus. I'm not even going to waste my time there, right? Why would God ever save those people? Or, or who are we simply avoiding because to do otherwise would be to break our own rules and regulations, right? Remember how horrified the disciples were when Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman at the well? Like, who, who are we just kind of avoiding because that's just not what good Christians do. Those, that's not the company they keep, right? Guys, lest we forget, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord, he was called, and this was in a derogatory sense, he was called a friend of sinners. And he wore that badge proudly, okay? He associated with some unsavory types, but folks, they did not make him unholy and unclean. In fact, it was the opposite. He oftentimes, he was the one reaching out and touching them, the lepers, and on and on. He was allowing them to come to him and worship and touch the hem of his garment and hold his feet and wash his feet with their hair. And instead of them making him unclean and unholy, he made them holy, he made them clean by introducing them to himself and by sharing the good news of the gospel that you can be made clean for all eternity, that you can be established in holiness for all eternity through faith in Him and His cleansing work on the cross. He made them clean. And that is part of what it means to be Christ-like. When we talk about Christ-likeness, well, it means we look more like Christ. And that is what God is preparing us for so that we can continue to bring the good news of salvation to all of our fellow sinners wherever God has us who, by the way, were also created in the image of God and who need to hear that message of God's grace and mercy in Christ. So now let's turn quickly to the other side of evangelism. God also prepares people to believe the good news of salvation. He just doesn't leave it to them to figure it out for themselves. He's working in their lives as well. And in our passage, Cornelius is a well-prepared seeker of God who brings this, this sense of expectancy and obedience to his search for God. So let's consider those two attributes, expectancy and obedience, as we seek for God. A well-prepared seeker looks to God expectantly. Now, we, we already saw this. Go back to verse 24. We already saw where Luke writes that Cornelius was expecting Peter and, and his group to come, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. So we, we see that he's expectant, but we also see that even before he calls together his friends and family, we see his expectancy in the prayers that he's praying, in his prayer life. He has expectant prayers. Look at verses 30 and 31. And this is where we see Cornelius explaining how this whole thing came about and it started, it was initiated through prayer. 
Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, and behold, a man stood before me in shining clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your charitable gifts have been remembered before God. So it's not like Cornelius just was hanging out in Caesarea. There were some Jewish folks there. He kind of heard about the God of Israel. And, you know, he just heard something about this God. So he decided, I'll just offer up a few prayers and see if there's anything to this. No, he continued in prayer, even praying during the regular Jewish hours of prayer, including this this ninth hour, the 3 p.m. prayer time. And on top of that, he's making charitable contributions to God's people. Folks, he was eager and he was expecting to hear from the God of Israel. That's why he was doing these things. So like Cornelius, a well-prepared seeker looks to God expectantly. The way we look to God with expectation informs how we live our lives and how our prayers come out. A well-prepared seeker also listens to God obediently. So look at our last two verses, verses 32 and 33. And here's where we see Cornelius's immediate obedience to God's revelation and directions. Starting verse 32, it says, Therefore send some men. This is the, the, the angel telling him in this vision. Therefore send some men to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And then Cornelius says this, So I sent men to you immediately. And you have been kind enough to come. So then we are all here present before God to hear everything that you have been commanded by the Lord. So folks, Cornelius didn't doubt and debate with God. He simply followed God's orders as he understood them. And as he puts it, he sent men to Peter immediately. He wasted no time in, in, in following God's instructions. And even before the apostle gets there with these six other Jewish men, Cornelius has already brought together all his friends and family and the people serving him in his role as a centurion, his sort of uh, servants and fellow soldiers and such. He's already brought them all in and it says present before God. Does he think God's in this? Yeah, because he says, I brought everyone in present before God to what? to hear everything that God had commanded Peter to tell him. He doesn't know what Peter's going to tell him, but he's ready to hear it. God prepares people to believe the good news of salvation, and he does so, folks, by cultivating in them a heart that is expectant and obedient towards God and his word. Um, Have you all ever heard the one about the guy who's standing on the roof during the flood? You guys heard this? Trey, come on probably heard this so the water keeps rising it starts you know at the at the doormat it goes up above the doors to the windows and to the eaves of the roof etc so the water's rising and this guy's on his roof and and he's stuck and so he cries out to god he says god if you're up there you know send me send me something save me I, i need salvation i need you to save me from this rooftop from this flood and so right then when he says that a rescue worker paddles up in the little raft and, uh, and he offers to bring the guy to land. He says, jump in my raft. I got, I got one more spot. Come on, let's go. And the guy says, no, 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 no. He refuses. And he says, I'm waiting for God to save me. You guys know where this is going? Well, the water keeps on rising and he cries out to God again. And immediately a big police boat comes up and there's police rescue workers on there. And they're saying, come on, man, jump down. 
the, the water's almost to the top of the roof. We'll, we'll take you to dry land. But again, the guy refuses, and he again emphasizes that he's waiting on God to save him. And this all happens again, and, and a helicopter comes over and drops a rope ladder down onto the roof and says, hey man, on this quickly shrinking roof in the flood, it says, climb up the ladder, we'll take you to the, the, the dry land. And yet again, he refuses. And so, of course, the water gets over the roof. This gentleman drowns, and he goes to heaven. And the first question he asks is, God, I was crying out for you to save me. Where were you? Why, why didn't you respond? And, of course, God points to the, the raft, and, and after that, the police boat, and after that, the helicopter. And he's saying, I was sending people all along to save you. And, you know, that, that story reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy once. We were sitting in a coffee shop. We were, we were having a spiritual conversation. And we were talking about knowing God, having a relationship with God. Because he wasn't a hardened atheist who didn't believe in any sort of God. He looked at creation. He looked at the stars, the universe, the beauty, the complexity. And he understood, deep within himself, he understood that he was created and that he had a creator. And so we're talking about how to have a relationship with this creator. You know, and, and he was super frustrated because he had prayed in, in his own way. He had prayed to this, this unknown God to, to, to have a relationship you know, what do I need to do? Reveal yourself clearly. He kept saying, clearly reveal yourself to me. And he was frustrated that God hadn't done that. And it's funny, after he shared this, I said, what if the fact that you and I are sitting in Starbucks right now having a conversation, what if that is God sending you the message of salvation? Because I had been sharing the gospel with him, talking to him about what it means to become a Christian. And he had been kind of resistant to it, waiting for God to respond in a clear and obvious way. And so I just pitched it back to him, and I'm like, man, as a Christian, I'm a representative of God. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm a sharer of the good news. And I, I certainly don't do that perfectly, but that's, that's what we're all called to as Christians. So I'm like, what if I'm the one that God sent to share the message of salvation so that you could have a relationship with God through faith in Christ? And since then, he's become a Christian, which is awesome. But, but do you understand, like, he was expecting God to do something, but he was missing what God was doing. Because it's like he, he wasn't, he didn't understand that God works through people. That's how this whole Great Commission thing rolls out to the ends of the earth. It's through people like you and I. And I, I don't know what he was expecting, some sort of miraculous vision or something like this. I don't know what he was expecting, but he wasn't expecting God to send a flesh and bone person to share his plan of salvation, the gospel. So this guy hadn't been responsive to the good news up to that point. And I, I really just have two simple applications for this last part of the passage, for these final verses. First of all, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that he's offering us, and that we've accepted forgiveness and a restored relationship with God, eternal life through faith in Christ. If you believe that, then here's my question for us. How are we preparing our hearts to hear from God? How are we preparing our hearts to hear from God? Do we really expect God to use us to accomplish his purposes? Or do we still think that it's some other person in some other country or somebody that went to some program in a seminary or something like this? Do we really expect him to use us as his vessels, as his vehicles? And what has God already told you to do in his word that you've neglected? I ask myself the same thing. What do I already know in terms of God's instructions 
that I'm just dismissing, that I'm not being obedient to. Because in my life, I've found that God rarely provides me with more illumination and more detailed instructions on next steps if I've been a poor steward of the ones I already have. If I've been a poor steward or disobedient to what God has already revealed to me in His Word. I rarely get all the next steps and a whole bunch more illumination if I'm stalled out there. So we got to ask ourselves, where have we stalled out in disobedience to what we already know God to be calling us to do and to be? Um, If you're listening to all of this and you're not a follower of Christ, that's my second application. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then I would simply ask you this. Consider whether or not this is God sending his message of salvation consider this morning like is this is the fact that you're you're listening to this i don't care if it's this morning or if it's a year from now on the internet on our website or on the podcast but could this be the very answer to your prayers when you cry out with that feeling of emptiness that feeling of purposelessness that everything is ultimately meaningless in your life in the world and that you're searching for meaning you're searching for a deep seated satisfaction that is in in, in, in fact eternal that you want that relationship with your creator as his creature, that you want to experience that level of love and peace and contentment, all these things? Like, could this be the answer to that prayer of you crying out in those moments? And I believe that it is. I believe that God has sent this message to you right now so that you too could be saved. Um. I guess I would just say my prayer is that God would, would, would cultivate in your heart a humility, but an expectancy that when you cry out to God, he's going to answer your prayers. And in fact, like I said, that this is an answer to that prayer of seeking to know God, seeking to have a relationship with him. And it's simple, really. I mean, it's the gospel. It's that, it's that Jesus Christ uh, well, I'll start here. It's that, that God that you're crying out to loved you so much, wanted a relationship with you so much that in your sin, in our sin, he sent his one and only son to give his life for you on the cross, to live a perfect life and to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins on the cross. And through his resurrection is offering us not just forgiveness of sin, but a restored, reconciled relationship with our creator, with God our Heavenly Father, and eternal life, because that's what it is to have a reconciled relationship to the author of life, God. That's what it is. It's to have a relationship that's enduring, that's never-ending. That's eternal life, and that's what we can have through faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray that God will lead you to receive that and believe that message. So I'll end with this. Whether God is calling us to share the gospel or whether he is drawing us to respond to it with a humble heart, I pray that our hearts would not just be humble toward ourselves and others, but I pray that our minds would be open to allow God's truth to contradict and cut across the grain of our expectations and our man-made traditions and our assumptions, and that we would be expectant and obedient in our response to God. That's my prayer. Next week, we're going to see how God answered Cornelius' prayers as we look at the first evangelistic sermon to a Gentile audience in the book of Acts. And that's going to be a good one. So let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.